we're going to be going through Colossians 1.28 tonight, kind of, uh, and I say that because I, I really wanted to just preach from Genesis to Revelation. Um, so uh, I got it narrowed down to, to just a couple books in the New Testament because our topic really could be preached from any passage in the entire Word of God. Hopefully that will make more sense by the time we get to the end. So I'm going to use my starting text as Colossians chapter 1. And again, this is Wednesday night. It's a little bit more laid back. If you have questions or thoughts or concerns, uh, slip a hand up. Comments are encouraged as well. And, and usually we've got more questions in the material tonight uh, and through this series as we go through our purpose statement. We're, we've been more sermon-oriented at least um, a little bit. And so um, uh, just a reminder, again, we're looking through our purpose statement in order to remind ourselves what is our purpose here at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. And, and more importantly, what is our purpose here on planet Earth? And so if you have that open and you see what is Worship, Grow, Serve right here on this first flap, we're going to go ahead and as we do every week through this short series, read that together. So would you read that together with me? Um, worship. We start with worship. We'll do up and and out, grow up and and out, serve up and and out. Let's start with worship. Worship up. We praise and honor God through Jesus Christ. Worship in. We gather with our church family to worship God. Worship out. We seek to extend God's worship among all peoples for His glory. Grow up. We seek to be made more like Christ according to His gospel. Grow in. We equip and encourage our church family toward gospel growth. Grow out. We display, proclaim, and reproduce the gospel among all peoples for His glory. Serve up. We do all things for the glory of God according to His gospel. Serve in. We serve our church family primarily toward their worship and growth. Serve out. We serve God among all peoples for His glory. Uh, so tonight we'll be dealing primarily uh, with grow. This is what our purpose is. And, and so for the next couple weeks, this is what we'll be unpacking together. Kind of, A, is this biblical? B, how did we get this from the Scriptures? And see what's our place and kind of uh, where we are right now in examining this as a church together. So let's go ahead and read Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, um, and then we will begin. Does somebody have that one? You got that one, Miss Carrie? Right one. Colossians 1, 28. Go ahead and read that for us. Whom we preach, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present them perfect in Christ Jesus. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's not the right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He said, The conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. You hear what he's saying there? That is, if you want to grow to, as a Christian, you must come to the conviction that Christian doctrine matters. I, I agree. This isn't static. We considered this last week. As a purpose and as, a, as an understanding that this is our purpose statement, it's always before us. We're always desiring and laboring by God's grace to live into what we just read together more and more. And I also explained last week that, that worship is really the main component of that, central. We exist to worship. That is fundamental. Everything else we do, growing and serving, up, in, and out, all of that flows from worship or is an aspect of worship. So we chose the term grow 
um, next because at the end of the day, this is what we are doing here. We're learning to worship more and more. We're growing to worship more and more, to live in the joy and power of His grace, to live a life of delight and joy in and dependence on God's grace, which is ours through faith in Christ Jesus. That is true worship. To grow in our ability to delight in the grace and favor of God. So last week, just to recap first, to make sure we're all on the same page here, we began by asking the question, do we as a church worship the true and living God? Do we? And if we do, how do we know? So we began to answer that last week by looking at, does anybody remember the text? Two weeks ago, I know, that's a, that's a rough one. John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We were reminded that true worship requires two things. I wonder if I give you the first, if you can give me the second. The first was revelation. Anybody remember what the second one was? Revelation and redemption. They start with an R. You know that we're Baptists, right? They're going to alliterate. I gave you the first one at the end. So listen, understand this. Let's recap. This is why we write recaps in the sermon. Uh, so we're reminded that true worship requires revelation and redemption. We must know God and we must know how to worship Him in order to worship Him. That sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? And redemption, we must actually be freed from our sinful idolatry to worship the true and living God. So we came to the conclusion of the matter, and it was this. Jesus is the center of true worship because Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, John chapter 1, and He's the only source of redemption. He's the cornerstone of the true temple. Actually, if He is the true temple. <laughs> he is at the heart of the true worshiper. To be united in Him by faith is to be a true worshiper who is learning and growing to worship in truth. And so... I offered this definition last week, and I've done this before, but I'm going to give you um, a, a slightly modified one from the last week and a little bit more complicated and a shorter version for you to be uh, memorized so you can, you can keep the heart. The, the, the long definition of worship is this. True worship is the whole heart, whole life response of faith to the revelation and redemption of God in Jesus Christ demonstrated through love for, trust in, and obedience to God by the power of the Holy Spirit and marked by all joy and gratitude. Is that a run-on sentence or is that a run-on sentence? All right. There's a test afterwards, so I'm going to ask you to memorize that. I'm kidding. Uh, let me give you the shorthand version. True worship is this. It's the response of faith to the Word of Christ. That's it. If, if I wanted to give you something to take away, and always remember when we're coming in here, we're always to be thinking about how we can reproduce what we're taking in, okay? We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But think about it. If I, I could give you just a shorthand version of what true worship is, it is always the response of faith to the Word of Christ. It's the beginning, middle, and end of true worship. And so what I want to do is I want to help us see this by starting at the very beginning. Because one way to look at the record of redemptive history is the record of two words. The record of two words. There's one true word and one false word. Really, this is interesting. History begins with a word. You remember this, right? How did God bring everything into existence? He spoke it. The heavens and earth were created by God's word. People were created in a unique, unique position in creation by God's Word. 
They were given a unique role. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. They were made to represent Him. They were very made for covenant relationship with Him. They were created to worship. From the very beginning, it has always been the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy, enjoy Him forever. So Adam and Eve were created to worship God to glorify God by trusting Him and obeying Him, to enjoy God by finding supreme joy and contentment in Him. And they were really lead worshipers, with Adam as the high priest of the Garden of Eden, as we learned in Sunday school. He was given the task of spreading the true worship of God throughout all creation. But we know the rest of the story, right? Another word was introduced. Remember I said two words. And it really wasn't even another word in the same sense of God with creative power. It's really more than an anti -word, of an anti-word than it is a word. The other word was simply a reversal, an attempt to undermine the real word. This word unmade what had been made by casting the first shadow of doubt into the minds of man. Of course, we know I'm referring to the deceptive word of the serpent who asked Eve, did God really say? That was the, the first weed planted into the heart and mind of man. And instead of a response of trust and obedience to the Word of God, Adam and, Elite, Adam and Eve believed the anti-word, the lie of the devil, and they disobeyed the Word of God. This was the very first example of false worship. And ever since that moment, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans, the truth of God has been exchanged for a lie, and people have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. You see, even though false worship was introduced, true worship was preserved by the promise of the true worshiper, one who would not worship the serpent, but would instead crush his stinking, ugly little head and rescue God's people through his victory. That promised one was announced by God Himself in the garden after the fall. First promise in the side of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. Who's got it? Go ahead, Scott. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There it is. Two words, right? Two messages. One true one false. And here's the thing. We can follow that line of two words all throughout Scripture. Did you know that? If you want a theme that helps you tie all of Scripture together, it is this theme. Two words. One true, one false. Which will you believe, listen to, and obey? Cain heard the true word. Did God not warn him that sin was crouching at the door? And he did not believe the true word and said, killed his brother. Is that true worship or false worship? False worship. Noah responded in faith to the word of Christ and was saved through the ark that foreshadowed the future salvation of God through the Messiah. Noah was a true worshiper. Abraham responded to the true word of Christ that called him to sacrifice his only son. In fact, Abraham believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead. True worship. Moses responded in faith to the true word of Christ. The Pharaoh did not. Joshua was strong and courageous as a response of faith to the word of Christ. That's true worship. Israel did not believe the word and failed to act in obedience to it. That's not true worship. 
In fact, uh, we, we go through our, our family worship book, which is the Gospel Story Bible every night with our kids, and there's this one chapter that summarizes First and Second Kings very clearly, and it simply says two kings, the tale of two kings. And really, First and Second Kings, those books are summarized by two types of kings. One who listens, obeys, and trusts the word of God, and one who does not. One who prefers the word of the nations. The prophets, even, are the record of God's mouthpiece, speaking God's word, calling for faith and repentance. A response of faith to the word of Christ. True worship. And of course, as we saw last week, there's only been one person ever who's offered a whole life of true worship, and that's Jesus Christ, who lived how? Just think of his life as it's put on display before us in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. He lives in constant obedience to the word of his Father. What his Father spoke, he did. What his Father commanded, he did. That's worship. Even now, Jesus is leading his people in the true worship of God, serving as our high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. And when Jesus returns, what will we see? We will worship truly and without ceasing forever, responding to the word of God with trust and obedience. We saw this last week, John 4, 23. Who's got that one? Anybody? Okay, maybe not. All right, let me read it. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? Listen to this. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Listen, when Jesus says that, Jesus does not mean my Father sent me because He decided just a little bit ago, you know what? You know the thing I'm missing is some true worshipers. I'm going to go send you down at this moment to look for some. No, this was the mission from the beginning. He created man to worship Him, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the reason you exist. Can I tell you something? Much of our failure to grow in God's grace is because we daily listen to the other word. We, we daily reject the true word and listen to the false word. We daily bend our knee to other idols and worship that destroys us. And we wonder at times why life feels so vain, empty, and sad. It's because we constantly dismiss, constantly ignore the primary reason we were created. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So here's the beauty. I'll just skip right to the end of the story. Revelation 22, and much to your prayers being answered, we're going to spend some time in your pastor's eschatology tonight, so don't ask too many questions about that. Uh, Revelation 22, you know how it ends, right? John's describing a, a heavenly Jerusalem that has ascended, where God is now present with His people, and every remnant of sin is removed, every tear wiped away from their eye, and we go back to the garden, and, and what do we read? Who's got Revelation 22? No one got that one? Okay. Let's, I'll read that one. We read, And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. Listen. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of their nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him or worship Him. 
Not simply singing songs, though there will be singing. It's an unceasing, unbroken enjoyment of God and devotion to Him. It's what you desire more than anything on this earth, and you don't even know it. That's why life's so hard. Because we have now only in part that which we desire most. We have a down payment, a wonderful guarantee of that inheritance which is stored up for us in heaven. But oh, how our hearts long for the entire inheritance, don't they? That's how the book ends. So in response, the saints say, Come, Lord Jesus, restore true worship. Here's the point we're getting at. Since the fall, true worship has been a response of faith to the Word of Christ. The promise and the fulfillment. So you want to grow in worship? Do you want to grow? Here's how you grow hear and respond to the Word of Christ. That's it. You want to grow in true worship? That's what you need to do. Hear and respond to the Word of Christ. Easy, right? Easy. There's a problem, isn't there? You know what the problem is? Two words. Sometimes those words sound a lot alike. The false word that promotes false worship, it's really loud and yet, it's really subtle. <laughs> so one of the many passages I, I, I thought about really expounding today was Revelation chapter 13. Um, and I know this really partly intends on how you interpret Revelation, but, but I actually believe Revelation 13 to be a picture uh, uh, of where we're currently at. Many people don't. That's okay. I believe that this has been fulfilled. But it's a picture of what continues to happen even now in this present age. So in this picture in Revelation 13, here's what we find. We find a beast rising out of the sea, out of chaos, out of war. It's a picture of strength, a picture of military might. He's conquering. He's being worshipped. And then someone read verse 4 of Revelation 13. They worship the dragon because he gives authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. Okay, so that, that language actually should sound familiar to you, right? Who is like the beast? Who's that usually attributed to? God. God, there's, who is like our God, right? Who is like Him? But, but here it's attributed to the beast by those who are in awe of Him. Then go ahead and read verse 5, someone. There was given to Him a mouth-speaking, arrogant word of blessings, and authority to act for 42 months was given to Him. And, and go ahead and skip to verse 8. you got verse 8 too. Somebody else got All who would dwell on the earth will worship Him. Okay, so here's the picture. Beast comes out of the sea. He's given power and authority. He has a mouth speaking blasphemy. And who's worshiping him? According to verse 8. Who's worshiping him? Everyone. All who dwell on the earth except those whose names are written in the book of life. Now, I told you last lesson that everyone worships, right? And here again, we see in the Scriptures. Everyone worships. But then, notice something. There's a second beast. And I want you to pay very careful attention. He's not like the first beast. He doesn't come out of the sea. He actually comes out of the earth. Stability and peace are his marks. Who's got verse 11 where he speaks this? Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, picture a dragon speaking, and I don't know if you're 
like me, I think of Smaug from the, 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 the growl, the deep growl of what's, whatever his face is, Sherlock. Um, but, but this actually, this, this voice of the beast, of this dragon, should probably sound nothing more like a serpent. Don't you think? Did God actually say? Come on now. Did God actually say that you can't enjoy a little physical intimacy with someone you really love? I mean, just because you are married, you're going to get married anyway. But notice that the end result is the same. In Revelation 13, worship is offered to the dragon through the beast. Worship is offered. It's false worship. And it's, it's the result, whether it's the blasphemes of the, the first dragon or the subtleties of the second dragon, it's false worship. And that word, I believe, is what we're living in right now. It's all around us. I don't think this is a picture of something that just took place in the first and second century. This is something that takes place in this present evil age, which is constantly contradicting and undermining the word of Christ. And friends, listen, this isn't a game. This is your life. He says that everyone will worship these beasts except those who are worshiping Christ, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And listen, two things that struck me about this passage is the focus on the two things we're talking about. Words and worship. In Revelation 13, it's what you find. You find words and worship. Both beasts have mouths and they speak and everyone worships. So listen, you, you might prefer to think differently about that Revelation interpretation. That's fine with me, but don't miss the message of it. Here's the message of Revelation 13. It's this. The devil, the world, and the flesh, your flesh, are all allied to conform your mind to a lie. And they will stop at nothing. The devil, the world, and your flesh are all allied working together to conform your mind to a lie, and they will stop at nothing. They want your mind to be conformed to a lie. They want you to desire something less than God. They want you to find your ultimate contentment, enjoyment in something He has created because that is worship. That's false worship. They want you not to trust the Word of Christ because that is salvation. And, and the lie is usually not as blatant as we might like for it to be. Now certainly there are those false prophets who are just off the veil, right? Just throw it off of themselves. Freud and Bertrand Russell and Richard Dawkins, just to name a few. God-haters, we, we know them. <laughs> they say so. But most of the lies are actually quite subtle, aren't they? False prophets that repeat the same old line. Did God actually say? Did God actually say Jesus is the only way? What about all those really good people who are Jews, Muslims, or Hindus? Truly, He accepts that worship too, right? Did God actually say that salvation is grace alone through faith alone? Surely, your good works must attribute something. He must help you a little bit get into heaven. <clears throat> Did God actually say that you can't enjoy the things your flesh really, really wants? After all, He made you and He made those things and He wants you to be happy. Get the point. The lies are often subtle, undermining your trust in God's Word. No response to the faith in the Word of Christ is no worship. Don't you see? That right there is the goal of the enemy. Revelation 13, He wants you to worship Him. What was the exchange in the wilderness after Jesus' baptism? You remember? You remember how it ended? First, you get the formal front-out-all attack by the devil, attacking Jesus. Then we get more subtlety, don't we? 
this is what the Word says, Jesus. Of course, he's using it completely out of context. And then finally, just, just look at all that I will give you if you worship me. Don't you see this? Genesis to Revelation, that's the call. Worship something less than God. It's the central battle of your life. What will you worship? False words tend to diminish, pervert, or contradict the true word. And here's the crazy thing about this. Because right now, you're probably thinking, you're listening to me and saying, yeah, man, it is a, it is a dangerous world out there, right? Here, here's what the scriptures say. The danger's in here, too. You, you want to talk crazy? Let's talk crazy for a second. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts, right? Moments after the greatest confession made to this point in redemptive history where the Apostle Peter says, you are the Christ, the living God. What do we hear moments later? Jesus telling Peter, who had just confessed he's the Messiah, the one who they promised, the one who they've been waiting for. Jesus says, Peter, you're speaking for Satan. Why? Justin said, Peter told him. Jesus said, I'm not going to die. Peter says, no. He contradicts the word of God. Far be it from you. Peter said, this shall never happen to you. Unless you might be tempted to think, well, that was pre-Pentecost. That's pre-Acts 2. Jesus, uh, Peter didn't have the full endowment of the Holy Spirit that he would have had after Jesus ascended. But what do we find Peter, or what do we find Paul having to do later on in the book of Galatians? It's not specific that it was a word, but what does he have to do to Peter? He rebukes him again, doesn't he? Why? For contradicting the gospel in Galatians by his treatment of the Gentiles. That's Peter. And if Peter can mislead people, don't you think you and I can mislead people? Yeah. For example, Paul's words in Acts 20, 29 through 30. Remember what the context is? He's talking to the elders of Ephesus. He's gathered all these preachers together for the last time. He's reminding them of how he lived to proclaim the gospel constantly, teaching, admonishing them every night and day. This is how I lived, Paul says. This is how I expect you to live, that you proclaim him. This is what your people need. They need a constant diet of the word of God. But then he says this in Acts 20. Who's got it? Hey. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among me not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Okay, you see what just happened? He's talking to a group of elders there. And he says, among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things, drawing the disciples away from them, after them. Guys, do you understand the threat here? The false word is active. The beasts are bellowing, and the question is, how will we stand? How will we grow in worship? Well, I've got the answer. And this is kind of like the midpoint. I'm going to try and get there. If we don't get there, we don't get there. Uh, but the answer Jesus gives is in John chapter 10. Anybody got John 10, 27? I do. Go ahead. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Okay, this is, the, this is simplicity. Thank you guys for that. What do you need to follow Jesus? You need to hear his voice. In other words, you need to have him proclaimed regularly. Do you want to grow in God's grace? There's only one way, truth, and life that leads to growth. And here's the idea. It's not the victorious life that the false prophets of the day promise you now. The only way is the word of Christ. And the word of Christ says, take up your cross and follow me daily. The word of Christ says, come to me and I will give you rest. The word of Christ which says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. True worship is the response of faith to this word in Christ. You want to grow in worship? 
Hear the word of Christ and follow him. What you and I need more than anything on this planet is to be transformed by this word of Christ. You know John 17, 17? Somebody have that one? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. That's why Jesus praised that. How are they going to grow in the image of God? Be sanctified by the word. That's Jesus' prayer. All right, we got some long scripture text here. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. This is what Paul's prayer is. Listen to Paul's prayer. Somebody have that one? Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight that you may that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with a light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those who call, to holy people who are His rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power. Amen. So the prayer there for Paul is grow my understanding of who I am in Christ. Grow my knowledge of your son, his person and work. Help me to better understand the hope to which I'm called. The glorious riches of the inheritance of the saints. The power at work in me and us. Here's my question. Is that our prayer? How often do you pray, Father, grow my knowledge of you and your son? How often? We just had a prayer request tonight. Nobody prayed. Pray that I would know Christ better. Pray that I would actually grow in my knowledge of the Son. I'm not shaming you. I didn't ask for it either. But that's the reality. Is that our prayer? Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He's got that one. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts with faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is a breadth and a length of height and depth, and know the love of Christ who surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. He goes on to the glory to God, to the church, to Christ Jesus forever. Amen. See, it's not just what they prayed either. It's what they did. They actually did it. And they did what Christ did. Remember what we read even last Sunday in Ephesians 5, 25-27. Paul explains Christ's love for them as the picture of a man loving his wife. What does he say? 5, 25-27. He's got that one. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she would be holy and blameless. Amen. Okay, so listen, church, our flesh towards us often towards or it tempts us towards disbelief, doesn't it? Our flesh tempts us that way. How often we lose sight of the hope. We lose faith in the power. Our sight's diminished. We stumble. Our knees feel weak. Anybody there right now? What do we need? Now your mind will tell you all sorts of things. Other people will tell you all sorts of things that you need. Books will give you a long list of things that you need. The Word says what you need is you need to have Him, Christ Jesus, proclaimed again and again and again. You need to be reminded. You need to have Jesus constantly held up before you. Like the Israelites who had been bitten by the vipers. You remember that story? My kids it blew their absolute mind, that story in Numbers. You need to be constantly be looking to Him for life. And hear me. 
constantly. That's why the apostles, Paul specifically read Colossians 1.28. Again, I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes, but I'll read it. In Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. He proclaims both warning and teaching. He's really covering the full gamut of ministry there. By holding out Christ, warning people don't turn away, admonishing them, stay the course, teaching them, expanding their understanding of what Christ's life and work means. He's giving them a deeper understanding. And man, do I want to go to the book of Hebrews right now, right? Because why? What's the end? What's the goal? It's to present everyone mature in Christ so that they proclaim Jesus. The warnings admonished them to hold fast, to live in a manner worthy of Christ. And the content was simple. It was Christ. He's proclaimed. They prayed it, they did it, and then they passed it on to the next generation. Read the book of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. How does Paul how does he admonish Titus in the end of his or Timothy in the end of his book? 2 Timothy 4, he says, preach the word. The word of who? Christ. What does he say to Titus? He says, Titus, find others who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. Find others who can proclaim him and contradict those who would detract from him. This is our purpose, folks, in growth. This is it. Hear the voice of Jesus and follow him, honoring him, obeying him, loving him all to the glory of God. Now, we're going to unpack that further next week, but right now, the time we have left, and we've got it, uh, I want to remind you, listen, we don't need more programs and clubs here. What we need is to regularly, constantly hear His voice. And we have to, therefore, learn to discern the true Word of Christ and every other counterfeit. And you know what this really is, what we've been talking about all along? This is theology. This is what it is. It's theology. I don't want to pull a bait and switch here, but in order to worship God, we need to know Him. And our understanding of who God is through His revelation, both generally in creation and particularly in His record of redemptive words and deeds in the Bible, our growing knowledge of the true and living God, that's theology. And so let me tell you, therefore, every single one of you are theologians. Every Christian is a theologian. You might be a bad one, you might be a good one, but you are a theologian. Or let me say it this way, returning to John 17. What is eternal life? Does somebody have John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is what? Eternal life is to know God. It's our honor and privilege to grow in that. Listen, theology isn't a special class of Christian. Theology is constantly being either conformed to, to the world, which is bad theology, or being transformed by the Word. It's one or the other, and it's constant. So we need to understand this. Now, it's not like a secondary exercise of something that we do when it's free time, nor is theology just for your pastors. See, we live in the reality where we want our pastors to grow deeper in theology, and that's good, but we want them to do it for us. You are called to grow deeper in your theology. Did you know that? This is not something we're called to do when we're done entertaining ourselves to death and we got some free time. This is, this is something that we do as high priority because if Revelation chapter 13 is correct, this is of eternal importance. 
that we might learn to discern between the words of the beast and the true word of Christ. And indeed, we might find our names to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and let me just say this. If you doubt the significance of this, I'm not going to go through all of this, but Legionary Ministries recently, in partnership with Lifeway, uh, did a survey. And they call it the State of Theology. They actually do it every year. And every year it's more and more depressing. It is horrifying. Just quickly, these are self-identified evangelicals. 46% believe that God accepts worship from all religions. That's almost half. 36% at least partly agree that their good works earn them a place in heaven. 43% of people agree that God is the author of Scripture. Simultaneously, 69% agree that modern science has undermined Christianity or Christian beliefs. 61% disagreed with the statement that even the smallest sin deserves eternal punishment, meaning 61% of the people polled don't understand the holiness of God. Of those who attend church once or twice a month, roughly half believe that sex outside of marriage is okay and that abortion is not a sin. Don't miss this, please. Because this isn't because the church in America doesn't have enough programs or clubs. It's not because the church in America isn't focused enough on creating networks of people who really like to hang out together. It's not because the church in America isn't relevant enough. It's because the church in America stopped proclaiming Him. This is what this is. They stopped warning and teaching everyone that they might be presented mature in Christ. Listen, the church, broadly speaking, has believed the lie that growth in numbers honors God more than growth in theology. See, that survey is a testimony that the church almost 40 years ago stopped praying, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, and started praying, bring them into the church, our word is truth. You might think I'm off my rocker here, but you'll find most modern evangelical churches, there's a little bit of scripture, void of context, and personal anecdotes then applied directly to your life in five easy steps. Is that a generalization? Yes, admittedly so, but it's really darn close to the truth, guys. I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm not trying to be mean. Let me just tell you this. I hate the lie. I hate the false word. I hate how many of our brothers and sisters are weak and anorexic because they've been fed the lie. Listen, I'm, i, I got to keep going here. Luke 24. Luke 24, 25 through 27. The context is here. Jesus just died. He's been resurrected. A couple of his disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. We've heard the story. They're sad. They're confused. They don't know what to think because there's been a report that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So they're not sure what to make of it all. They don't recognize Jesus, but Jesus meets them. He walks with them. He asks them what's wrong, and they tell him all that's happened. They said, how could you not hear about this? It's pretty big news. You must not be from around here. And do you know how that ends? You know what Jesus tells them? Guys, I'm really sorry for your loss. Maybe we can hang together sometime. Or you know what? Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. I know Jesus really well. Or even, okay, I'm Jesus. I tricked you. I just don't want you to feel bad any longer. You know what he says? Someone read Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all scriptures. He says to them, you don't know the scriptures. 
Don't you remember what the prophet said? Why don't you believe you've got the oracles of God? Oh, foolish ones. And then wouldn't you, Brother Johnny, just love to be part of that Bible study? If there's one place I could put myself in Scripture, it's probably right there at that sermon that Jesus delivers them. Yeah. I love it. Because you know what? Even when we're suffering, guys, this is what we need. I'm not talking about truisms, platitudes, or a lack of compassion. I'm talking about a commitment to constantly proclaim Christ and point people back to Him. Yeah. We're almost done. I know. I know. I don't. I, I do want to leave. I don't want to leave without attempting to apply this real quick. Okay. I've got a few, three application points. Real quick, I'm done. First, true theology is more than facts. I want you to hear that. True theology is more than facts. So if you hear me saying what we need is more intellectual prowess, you're you're partly hearing me right, but I need to elaborate more. You got that quote there in Jonathan Edwards. It's a bit of rhetorical embellishment. He warned the devil is orthodox in his faith. He believes the true scheme of doctrine. He's no deist, Socinian, or Arian, or Pelagian, or Antinomian. The articles of his faith are all found in what he's thoroughly established in. Again, I'm not talking about simply ascending to the truth. I know this is why some of you even struggle with that term theology, don't you? It sounds very academic, like it's only an intellectual exercise. That's not what I'm after. I'm talking about more what Gregory Beale states in a biblical theology lecture. He said this, how do we increase the presence of God in our lives and our churches? How did Adam maintain God's presence in his life before the fall? I believe that after you believe in Christ, it is growing in the word of God ultimately and obeying it. Remember what happened to Adam. He was sitting right there when Eve was misquoting scripture. She misquotes it three different ways, and then she falls, and Adam falls with her. I take it then that living in the light of God's Word is the way we live in light of His presence. If we don't live in the light of His Word, we are in darkness, and we will fail. We will not have His presence. It's as simple as that. But it's not real simple. It's not just reading the Word of God, but we really have to have a mindset to come to the Word of God and be willing to be transformed by it, not reading in our own thoughts, but praying that God's thoughts will form our thoughts, not that our thoughts will mold God's thoughts. Mm. You understand what he's saying? It's not just a matter of coming to the Word of God in order to check a box, but anticipating actually being transformed by it. Let me ask you something. When you walk into Sunday school, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, are you anticipating being transformed by the Word of God? William Ames put it like this. Theology is the knowledge of how to live in the presence of God. That's what we're talking about here. True theology is the work of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of Christ to bring us to a deeper, fuller understanding of our covenant God. It shapes how we see everything. Now, we, we certainly don't want to be like those in the church of Ephesus who Paul refers to in 2 Timothy, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. But friends, the answer isn't less than learning, but more diligent study and prayer. It's a steady diet of the Word of Christ, rightly divided in faith. Prayer for, prayerful labor to apply it, to respond with trust and obedience. The last two are quicker. Second, not only are we not talking about just intellectualism here, but second, true theology takes work. That's not what we like to hear, but it does. True theology takes work. Bad theology is not hard to acquire at all. It's really stinking easy, actually. Go to a local Christian bookstore, you put about 80% of the books, you can take in some really bad theology. Turn on Christian radio, it's slightly better. Turn on TBN, well, don't, just don't turn on TBN. Um, the reality is it's a bit like fast food versus cooking a home-cooked meal. We, we go to the Christian bookstore, we pick up a light, easy book to read, especially if it's geared towards us, very devotional, going to tell you how to live your day-to-day -day life in a way that's very appealing, and yet it'll lack good theology. It'll not actually help you grow in the joy and the power and the grace of God. 
Friends, good theology does not come easy, but it is worth the work. We put it like this. This is an example. Not everybody, it doesn't happen to everyone, but let's just say you decide to take on something a little bit heavier. You really want to study the idea of soteriology, which is the study of salvation, what our salvation is and how we're saved. So you go to the, that topic and you pick up a book like John Stott's The Cross of Christ, a great, great book, classic. You pick it up, you start reading through it, and you come to a word like a propitiation, and you're like, that's just, ugh, no thanks, back to my devotion. Amy Bird writes in a book that she recently put out, she said, if your doctor diagnoses you with Hashimoto's, Hashimoto's disease, Hashimoto's disease, sorry, Hashimoto's disease, are you going to say, that sounds too technical. I'm not going to worry about that. Are you? No. You're going to want to learn from the doctor. What is he talking about? If you had Hashimoto's disease, you would want to learn all that you could about it, including educating yourself about the doctor who made the diagnosis. I get it. Propitiation is a good word. Okay. Study it. Seek help to better understand it. Church, we have contracted a severe and fatal disease. We need to understand the remedy. Just talk broadly. People in general are dying of sin. The lie of the devil is the disease isn't as bad as you think it is, and the remedy isn't as good as you think it is. We know that's not the case. The disease is actually far worse than anyone could possibly imagine, and the remedy is far more glorious and valuable than any of us could currently comprehend. So, listen, true theology takes work. It takes commitment to get up a little bit early and get your high knees in your Sunday school seats. It takes commitment to, after a long, hard day of work and some fried chicken on a Wednesday night, to stay and stay awake in Wednesday night. It's hard work. Martin Luther, a third thing is this, and I want you to hear this. Theological, theology is not only hard work, but true theology is practical. Hear this. Martin Luther wrote, to know God is to worship Him. Theology that is not practical is not true theology. Think about it. You see this all in Scripture. You know most of Paul's letters, Romans, is, is probably the greatest doctrinal letter ever written. Romans 1 through 11 is just straight doctrine. You know what Romans 12 through 13 is? Is it practical? Yeah, it's super practical. All of us say, yes, it is, but you know what it is, right? It's chapter 1 through 11 applied. It, it's all Paul's doing there. Same thing happens in the book of Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 13. Is it practical? Absolutely. You know what it is? It's Hebrews 1 through 12 and 27 applied. It's a theological application. He's applying all he said in the book of Hebrews. There's no truth apart from God, no discernment apart from the word of Christ, no way to know how to live apart from true and growing theology. Last quote, Sinclair Ferguson, and we're done. I'll conclude. He puts it like this. He says, generally speaking, thinkers who make the are those who make the best doers. Cast your mind over the life stories of the men and women who have had the most practical influence on the church, or perhaps your own life, you will discover very few among them who were not students of Christian truth. A verse in the Old Testament illustrates this. It says of man that as he thinks within himself, so he is. That summarizes the Christian position perfectly. How we think is one of the greatest determining factors in how we live. So I'll wrap it up. I conclude. We exist to worship. For true worship, we need revelation and redemption. We are both in Jesus Christ alone. And to grow in true worship, it's simple. We need a steady diet, therefore, of the word of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit, believed and obeyed. Are you growing up in doctrine and knowledge of truth? If not, avail yourself to every opportunity to hear the word of Christ.
And so as Paul says, we also agree here with him in Colossians chapter 128. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I want to hear your thoughts and comments. You can save until after we pray because I know we went a little bit over, but let's go to the Lord and pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that we often trust the lie when we should be listening to the voice of your Son and following Him. Father, would you help us be a discerning people? Would you help us to grow in the knowledge of your love for us in Christ? Would you help us to grow in our understanding of who we are, our desperate need of salvation from sin? The completion of that salvation for which we wait, as Peter puts it. Father, would you grow us in our understanding of you, your holiness, your justice, your love, faithfulness, your mercy. Father, would you magnify your name in our sight. As we grow in our understanding of these things, would you help, Lord, our world to fade? Would you diminish the voice of the evil one that tempts us to follow anything that's less than your perfect son? And Father, help us. We ask by your grace, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I'll dismiss you in just a second. I just want to encourage you. Listen, the reason we're going through this right now, the reason I want to preach this to you is because coming up after this, we're going to revamp our Wednesday nights again to a little bit deeper theology because we, we want to practice this, okay? So I pray that you're encouraged and it's helpful for you. Again, any questions, comments you want to have, I'll be here after the service. Thank you so much for being here. I love you and everyone. Have a great day.